Welcome to Reliability Matters, a podcast for the electronic assembly industry. Each episode covers topics related to reliability, best practices, and environmentally responsible assembly techniques with insights from experts across the electronic assembly industry. Now, here's your host, Mike Conrad. Welcome back. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the Reliability Matters podcast. I'm so glad you're with me. And today is a twofer, not one guest, but two guests today. Cheryl Tolkoff and Greg Caswell are authors of the new book, Design for Excellence in Electronics Reliability. It's more than 350 pages of valuable insight into reliability. Cheryl works for NI, we all knew them as National Instruments, and has over 30 years of experience in electronics manufacturing, focusing on reliability and failure analysis. She's passionate about applying her unique background to accelerate product design and development while improving reliability, optimizing resources, and improving customer satisfaction. Throughout Cheryl's career, she's had an extensive experience, she's had extensive experience teaching others, She's been a published author and a senior member of both ASQ and IEEE. She's also an ASQ certified reliability engineer and certified manager of quality and organizational excellence. Cheryl earned her bachelor's of mechanical engineering degree from Georgia Tech and a master's of science and technology commercialization from the University of Texas, Austin. Greg is recognized as a pioneer in surface mount technology manufacturing and has over 50 years of experience in in the microelectronics industry. He was editor and co-author of the book entitled Surface Mount Technology. That must have been one of the first books, if not the first book, on surface mount technology, published in 1984, and Design for Excellence in Electronics, a much newer book published in April of this year, 2021. He's also the author of over 270 technical publications. He's quite a prolific writer. Uh, Greg is past president of the International Microelectronics and Packaging Society, known as IMAPS, and recently received the Lifetime Achievement Award from that society. He received a Bachelor's of Science in Electrical Engineering from Rutgers University and also has a Bachelor's in Management from St. Edward's University in Austin. As I mentioned, uh, Cheryl and Greg are the authors of Design for Excellence in Electronics Manufacturing, published by Wiley and available on Amazon and perhaps other places we'll find out. Uh, We're going to give away a free copy of that book. That's $130 value, at least. Uh, And we're going to give that away to one lucky viewer or one lucky listener. So stick around near the end of our conversation with Cheryl and Greg. I'll provide instructions on how you can uh, enter to win a copy of of their book. And it's certainly worth waiting for. So without any further ado, I'd like to welcome my guests, Cheryl Tolkoff and Greg Caswell. Thank you both for being my guests today guests today, I should say. Thanks for having us, Mike. Absolutely. So you you wrote a book. That must be a good feeling to have that behind you now and, and, uh, you know, off the presses. (laughs) That was quite a process, I would imagine, right? (laughs) That's an understatement. (laughs) The question is, had you known how much work it would be, would you have done it? Uh, I'm sure the answer is probably yes, but um, I don't know, maybe not. Well, I think it's one of those, like everything, you think it's going to be a lot easier than it is. And then once you get in, you, you see it through. But it definitely took a lot of twists and turns. It took us much longer than expected to pull it off. But we're glad to be on the other side and, and glad bet. to finally get it in people's hands. I'll bet. It was published just recently, right? Is it? It's, it's a fresh publication? Yeah. April of this year. Okay. All right. And you're starting to see some of them fly off the shelf or creep off the shelves? They yeah, are definitely the selling. 
<laughs> well, we've gotten uh, some good interest from folks across LinkedIn. And, you know, so I've definitely had all kinds of peers reach out and express some interest, what to read for. So it's been fun. Well, neither yeah, of you like, are. Like, like I was mentioning before, um, I've had two customers lately that have the book on their desk right in front of them and say, you know, you said this in the book, how does that apply to me? And you have to kind of remember what you said in the book and then <laughs> translate it into what you need to do for them yeah, in you may real have, time. So you may have written that at 3 a.m. in the morning, you know, two and a half years ago, three years ago, and, and all of a sudden it's brought exactly. back into a different context and uh, <laughs> your, your readers expect instant recollection of, of what was in your head yes. at that moment, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's uh, that's the thing about words. I mean, they, they're, they're permanent, right? So um, that's the reason for good editing and good review and, and rereads. And I'm sure there's a lot of prior versions on the cutting room floor before you were satisfied with the final result. I, I wrote a book recently. I don't know if I'll ever publish it or not, but I, the, and I realized the art of, of, of writing a book is, is uh, definitely an art form and everyone does it a little differently. My MO was to write it and put it on the shelf for six months and then pull it off the shelf and read it again. And you know, sometimes I'd go, well, that guy's good. And sometimes I'd go, what was I thinking? You know, so um, it, it's, it's definitely a, a, a long experience to do something like that. Yeah, we had a, a lot of moments like that. And of course, COVID came in in the middle of everything as well, too, and you know, changed things up. And but uh, even we were surprised at just how many edits and re-edits and we'd swear how many times we were proofing each other's work and had other people proofing it and peers and it's like how did we miss that right. <laughs> i didn't mean to say that right so. well time time is a great tool for reviewing your work you know it, yeah. it, it you look at it from a different perspective your head's in a different place you know uh, maybe maybe not quite as much with technical work because technical follows rules that are still the same rules six months later um, creative writing probably changes a little bit because there aren't, aren't quite so many, you know, hard, fast rules, but, but, um, but either way, it's a, a long process and, and I, uh, I cheer on you guys. I wish you all the best success with the book. And we're going to be, as I said earlier, we're going to be giving uh, a copy of that away to one very lucky uh, viewer or listener. Um, let's start with your background in our industry. Uh, let's start with Cheryl. Tell, tell me, Where'd you come from? What, you know, what were you doing before you entered this industry? What brought you to this industry? And what has your journey been throughout this industry? Absolutely. Um, well, it's definitely been a circuitous path, pun intended there, but I've always been in, in the electronics industry basically since I graduated uh, from Georgia Tech with a mechanical engineering degree. So that was my uh, first job out of college was here in Austin where I still am today. IBM brought me out here at the time, um, back when they were making um, printed circuit boards from start to finish, fully uh, integrated. They were doing the laptops here, um, the PS2s back in the day, um, early portables, and then box builds for some of the systems, things that were going on. And I just absolutely fell in love with manufacturing. Um, so I was a process engineer, and that's really where I got my start. And that was right at the era when you know, there was still uh, a lot of solvent cleaning. So you know, that began the transition into the chemistry of processes as we were converting from solvent cleaning to no cleaning to water wash and you know, all different variations in there. And so um, you know, I worked at IBM for a number of years. And uh, IBM was gradually starting to get out of actually building things. Um, and so I took that as an opportunity to move into the um, 
the fabrication side of things, chip fabs. And so Cypress Semiconductor was my next stint again here in the Austin area. And so I had a chance to work in fab um, again as a, a process engineer, but my focus then was the first time on defect reduction. And so um, I had all the great toys in a, a fab making programmable logic devices and static RAM. And so that was uh, SIMs and EDXs and protocol counters. And so it was a, another the way to, to kind of see the industry, but still in the manufacturing world. Um, and so I, I really enjoyed that experience. And of course, that started the kind of the high tech detective work that became kind of the defining um, elements of my career going forward. Um, and then uh, Cypress um, shut that facility down as they were transitioning into 8-inch and then overseas. And so that's when I first went to work for uh, what was known then as National Instruments, now NI. And so there I worked um, in process, but began taking on the quality and reliability roles. And so we were standing up a reliability program at the time um, from scratch, um, setting up you know, HALT and HASS and lifetime testing. And so I did that um, for a number of years and then had the opportunity to go to work for DFR Solutions at the time for a number of years. And again, another great experience that took me all over the world where Greg and I first began to work very closely together um, with clients across all different types of industries, you know, helping them look at how to make electronics more robust and reliable. And so um, that's really where you know, we begin to kind of craft a lot of the things that you see in the book, because, you know, industries are very different. Environments are very different. One process or one component can be great in one application and horrible in another. And so that's when we began to you know, develop a lot of the concepts and the ideas that you see in the book. And of course, after that, I came back to NI to manage the company's global quality program. And that's where I am today. Awesome journey. Uh, first of all, you had me at PS2. You didn't even need to go past that. <laughs> and, and second, just uh, I always ask people who are ex-IBMers if this is true. IBM, some say the acronym for IBM is not International Business Machines. It's I've been moved. Is, that, is there truth to the I've been moved part of it? it it's, like, it's like see the world, join the Navy, you know, or see the world, start with IBM. Um, you know, uh, it wasn't that, I don't think it, I would have called it that case for me. You know, the, the, I was working out of, you know, what we called ECAD, Electronic Card Assembly and Test. And in Austin, we had everything except chip fabrication here for IBM. So we had a panel plant fabrication facility. We had the assembly and test, box build, repair and rework. So I did get the chance to travel and visit global sites for IBM, but I wasn't relocated. And it was, you know, it was like a, a great experience because we had almost all one thing in an original campus. And for those people who live in the Austin area now, it's become like the super mega shopping center called the Domain. And I work near there now. And so it's really weird to see how they turned it from this, you know, enormous facility into uh, upscale shopping. Yeah, 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 excellent. There was a uh, mall in the Bay Area where I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area that was... Uh, some type of mall turned in, and HP bought the mall and turned it into a, you know, business park uh, for HP. Yep. Uh, who knows if it's back to be a mall again? Probably not these days. Uh, Greg, tell me uh, same questions. Tell me about your journey. You've been around for fifty yeah. years in yeah. this industry, so I imagine you you rolled out of bed, graduated, uh, uh, you know, teething, and then started working in this industry. I mean, <laughs> it seems like most of your life. No, well, I just I tell people around answers that I'm the old guy. And uh, my, <clears throat> my career kind of started uh, going to college at night in parallel with working 
uh, for Burroughs Corporation in New Jersey. And I worked on the Iliac 4, which kind of dates me. And uh, from there, went to RCA, where, like Cheryl, I got to work on uh, fab lines, um, making the integrated circuits in, uh, in both silicon and silicon on sapphire. And I got involved in the, the first project to develop leadless chip carriers and surface mount um, processes, if you will, back in the mid-70s. And then translated that into coming down to Tracor Aerospace here in Austin in the late 70s, where I set up one of the first SMT manufacturing lines in the United States. And um, on that line, we actually built the first SMT electronics to go into outer space. Uh, the book came together uh, as part of working with um, 13 other chapter authors, and we put together the first book on SMT that you mentioned uh, in 1984, and it was kind of sponsored by Isham, which is IMAPS today, and um, kind of brought together what I called, you know, the 14 wizards of SMT back in that time frame. And from there, I uh, moved on up to being a chief engineer of a division at Tracor, and then a couple of colleagues and I uh, started our own company here in town, and that's how I kind of moved over into uh, the contract manufacturing side of things and spent uh, the next 30 years or so uh, doing contract assembly for different folks and working for a couple of different outfits here in town. And then um, went to work for a nanotechnology company in Maryland. Uh, and uh, it was a good idea at the time. Um, I uh, started working for them. Things were going along pretty well. Um, and the money kind of stopped from the investors and uh, the company went out of business, essentially got sold to another company for, for really inexpensive price. And uh, that's when I started working for DFR Solutions, which is now almost 12 years ago. And, uh, and I'm still there through the, through the purchase by Ansys two years ago. So that's how I got to where I am now. Very good. And how uh, do you, uh, does Greg and Cheryl, how do you guys know each other? Other than everyone in this industry seems to know everyone in this industry. But to get together and collaborate on a book tells me there's some history there. Well, well both of us, history was, yeah. yep. Go ahead. We're both going to say the same thing. That that we the, both worked at DFR, DFR right. okay. for several years and worked on a lot of projects there. Uh, together and and then um, you know got together in in the thinking process initially with uh, our former CEO Craig Hillman to put together this book um, what five plus years ago I guess the the you know the idea manifested itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I realize that sounded like a silly question since I know you both worked at the same company, but that doesn't always mean 
you you hook up with someone and, and decide on this multi-year project to write a book. So so no, that's that's perfect. Thanks for answering that. Uh, let's talk about reliability. Well, I can give you a little more context there. Oh, too. let's do that, Cheryl. Here comes <laughs> yeah. the real story, Greg. Here comes the real story. <laughs> yeah, there you go. But I mean. Like you said, just because you're co-workers doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to commit to writing a book together, right? But yeah, that's where, you know, Greg and I just seem to have a lot of synergy in our focus areas and interests in. We'd started doing publications together and talks together, you know, for SMTA, um, IPC, you know, and other groups, including clients. And we worked on a lot of projects together. And so, you know, we had a lot of experience editing and writing together already before the book. And, and, and then also had, I think you know, were talking about the why, you know, why write a book, that similar perspective of, you know, because we see so many clients seeing the same things over and over and going, and, you know, it's really sad. You know, it's great to work on problems, but we want them to be new and novel and different and not people having to struggle with things that we've already seen solved that the industry knows how to solve. So... Oh, there we go. That makes a lot of sense. Um, let's talk about reliability from you know a press box view, at least at first. Um, I've talked to a few people about reliability when I started this podcast called Reliability Matters, right? So I wanted to get into all things reliability, and I, I had more than one person respond when I asked them about, you know, what's your reliability program? These are smaller companies, and they go, oh, our, you know, and they would refer to their yeah our QC program, blah 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 blah. And I'm like, no no no, reliability. And they go, well yeah, quality. So I. Is it common for people to kind of mistake quality for reliability? I, I see the shaking heads. I think we're all in agreement there. Mm -hmm. So tell me in my audience, and more importantly, the, the difference between quality and reliability. So, you know, the biggest difference for me, and there are a few that we can you chat about while we're here, but the biggest difference is we're talking about time, um, the duration of the time and the environment because you can make something with perfect quality and it can be completely unreliable. Um, it, you know, once you get it out there in its actual use conditions or the stress that you put it under, it falls apart, but you made it exactly how you intended to, exactly how it was documented, exactly what the instruction said. And so if you think about it from a factory perspective, they did their job. It's a quality product. We made it exactly the way it was specified in design but that doesn't mean reliability at all. So you have to, to match that to the expected use environment and over time to get to reliability as over and above quality. Yeah, I would suppose if you take yeah. a consumer device and stick it on a spaceship and put it in space, it, it may not last very long. Uh, however, there was nothing wrong with the quality. It met 100% of its quality marks, maybe even more. And absolutely, yet, yet it's, yeah. it's use. And we're going to talk about fit for use in a little bit. We're going to get there. Um, but I guess that, yeah, that is a good difference. Greg, any, any color commentary on that? Uh, well, I look at, you know, several things where you talk about some of these high reliability uh, situations with customers. And yet we are, we're seeing, for example, you know, with space foreign applications that uh, some folks are utilizing automotive grade components because they've actually been screened uh, by the manufacturers to a level somewhat comparable to the class S parts for space. So, you know, they're getting a little bit more bang for their buck uh, with that, you know, kind of utilization of a, uh, you know, a not 
not as high rel component on paper, but performing quite well uh, regardless of that. So, you know, there's kind of a, a transition to a better reliability uh, there as well. I spoke with someone oh, on the show maybe a couple years ago. I forget who he was um, and the part that he was speaking about specifically. But to your point, he said that, you know, the space agencies, you know, NASA would be far better off grabbing a couple of maybe four um, automotive parts and put them as, you know, one primary and three redundant for a fraction of the price of one part that was specced into, you know, uh, space uh, standards uh, because the chance of four commercially available off-the-shelf automotive parts failing is actually much less than one um, part built for one application for one customer uh, because they just can't exactly. have the history behind it. They don't have the thousands or millions of hours of Volume. test data behind it. Yeah. Right, exactly. Um, so and that's such a great point because yeah, there, there's more than one way to achieve reliability. And that's what we you know, talk about in the book too, right? You can, Greg gave the example of you know the part itself, choosing parts that are rated for certain environments, but you just mentioned redundancy. Right. So you can combine methods to come up with the most cost effective method for achieving the reliability you need. But you have to know what reliability you're aiming for to get there. Yeah. One of my favorite subjects when it comes to reliability is the automotive industry, because the automotive automotive industry is slowly transitioned from a completely mechanical assembly industry that purchases a few electronic gadgets here and there to, you know, 20, 30 percent of their bill of materials are now electronics, uh, maybe more. Um, and, you know, melding with the, and, and mixing with the, with the uh, mechanical side. Uh, Tesla, for example, was long criticized in the early days um, of their overall assembly quality because they were a high tech company. They were a software company that built cars. They were not a car company that built software. Uh, and, and I think they had to learn a little bit how to be a car company, right? Uh, and, and get that part down. But, Unlike the aviation industry that has, you know, one primary and two redundant computers for pretty much everything on the, on the aircraft, uh, the auto industry has one system that typically performs a variety of, of, of tasks and uh, very little redundancy, if any. And uh, that's okay when the electronics are, you know, infotainment, when they're your seat massagers and seat warmers and coolers and climate and... XM radio, you know, satellite radio stuff that that can all fail. And, you know, you're not it's not going to kill you. Now, in, in today's modern day with most cars, not just electric cars, but most regular cars, uh, we now rely on many of these features to keep us safe, we no longer look over our shoulder, we look at the blind spot indicator, we no longer um, really are, are, we don't practice the safe driving skills that we grew up practicing because now we have systems that take care of that for us. Uh, cruise control, adaptive cruise control. You know, I used to, the first car I had with it, I would always hover my foot over the brake, just ready to catch it when it failed. And it's never failed. Same with blind spot indicators. I find myself not turning over my shoulder anymore. I trust the system. And if those systems break, if there are reliability issues within those systems, now people can get hurt or worse. Um, so, and there are no backups. So they really have to be you know, designed as well as, if not better than what we see in the avi aviation industry because aviation is safe because of redundancy and cars don't have the same redundancy. So uh, that being said, I'm gonna drag us back a little bit so we don't get too far ahead of ourselves. 
uh, how, what's the best step for a company that realizes they need a reliability program? What, where do they start? I, I think a lot of companies just circle around the subject, but they don't know where to take the first bite, you know? So um, what's a good first step uh, in establishing a reliability program? Well, the first step is being aware that you need one. <laughs> um, it's, uh, you know, in, in the, a lot of the, the startups, you, kind of the, the common thing now is fail fast, you know, minimum viable product, get started, get something out there. And so you see for truly small companies or companies getting started, you know, they really focused on making something work, right? So they're not necessarily focused on, the long-term quality or reliability, because first they've got to see, you know, is my idea even going to cut it, right? So you see companies will get started there, um, but you need to begin to think very early on about the necessity of having it and how it's going to be used. Because we talk a lot in the book and the need about you know, understanding the customer, how they're going to use it in the use environment, because that's the first steps toward being able to design for that that your, your device for what it needs to survive is knowing what you're trying to design for. And, you know, you, you do some early work just in the, the creation side before you move into that. But awareness is number one. And then uh, how's it going to be used is number two. Yeah, makes sense. Greg, tell me about uh, in-use environment. How important is it to know where the product's going to be used? Understanding the use environment and the stresses that the product might see during its intended lifetime. Um, it's kind of fascinating when we, we talk to prospective customers and, you know, you'll say, well, you know, what's the operating environment for your product? And they'll go minus 40 degrees C to plus 85 degrees C. And, and then you go, no, 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 that's not the operating environment. That might be your spec limits, but what is the actual operating environment and we we have this this occurs over and over and trying to explain to folks that uh you know no matter where you go around the world the the delta t in temperature each day is about 15 to 20 degrees centigrade and it's just a matter of where are you and where are you on the scale um but but they you know they're hung up on their spec and so we have to kind of teach them what the use environments really are, you know, thermally, uh, vibration issues, uh, drop shock. Uh, you know, we, we get to cover all of those different environments and make sure that the customer understands them so that we can proceed with, you know, kind of putting together a viable reliability assessment. Yeah, and I'm a big runner, so I'm going to give you a running analogy. Um, so, you know, one of the things that's, you know, common for first time runners training for something is, you know, how do I train and where do I train? And we're in Texas, so it's hot. So a lot of people are like, well, I'll go to the gym and I'll run on the treadmill, right? And I'll build up my mileage. I'll become a really good runner on the treadmill. But if you're training for a trail run and you do all your training in the gym on a, on a treadmill, you are going to be completely reliable once you get out there and you have to face the heat and potential wet and mud and rocks and sticks. Your shoes are different. Your gear is different. The clothes you wear is different. The, um, the things you carry with you to eat and drink are different. So you did the training. You could be perfect under those circumstances, but horrible once you get on the trail to do that actual run because you're 
training or your design environment did not match your use environment. And that's exactly what happens in electronics too. Again, back to that quality side, build it works perfectly, but you put it out there in the sun or the heat or the cold or vibration and shock. And it literally is like, uh, I wasn't designed for this. Right. Right. Works well in a lab, get great numbers in a lab, put it out in the field and all things change. Right. I think that's one of the big challenges with internet of things with IOT is we're putting electronic devices in things that have not historically had electronic devices in them. Not necessarily for those who listen to the show, they know I kind of go crazy about this, but not because we should, but because we can, right? Um, Particularly in today's days of severe chip shortages, we're still building devices that serve no purpose except just to, to, I don't know, just for effect. But at any rate, um, you know, IOT, uh, a lot of IOT is class one device, right? It's just consumer stuff, junky stuff that's, that performs some, some uh, interesting act. And uh, I'm thinking like a connected toothbrush or something. You know, they actually do sell connected toothbrushes that can narc on little Johnny or Jamie when they're not brushing their teeth for long enough. Um, but that definitely is not a class three device. It's not going into space. It's, no one's going to die if it fails. And yet it's still subject to running in a harsh environment. Therefore, it has to be built closer to a class three device than maybe a, a traditional class one device, you know, electronic flea collar or something like that. So I, I think we're seeing a lot of, of um, emphasis on reliability, even on parts that um, may not have otherwise been subject to that level of scrutiny from a reliability standpoint, not because people will die if it fails, but because the company will lose its reputation, have to replace a part. You know, it's just ex- electronics now are just expected to, to last, um, you know, the, the, the term, there's no moving part, so it lasts forever, not technically true, but, but that's what people think. So there does seem to be a greater awareness now of reliability all throughout the, the, uh, the classes, uh, class one through space, really. Yeah. Uh, talk about, let's talk about manufacturing. Uh, I've seen several examples, I know you guys have, uh, definitely seen several examples of things that are expected to last, expected to have a certain reliability expectation, but but they're impossible to build, you know? So there is a design for manufacturability element. You know, that seems to be one of the first steps uh, in reliability is making sure the part can be manufactured to be reliable, um, however, whatever that entails. Tell me about the importance of design for manufacturability and, and uh, how much can that change the reliability outcome? Well, DFM, uh, in, in my opinion, is one of the, the most critical applications that you can get involved within an overall design for excellence program. You have to look at the materials, the components that have been selected for the application. You have to validate through analysis that they are going to survive the intended environment the circuit board laminate. Um, we get a lot of people and I ask them, what, what laminate have you chosen? And they go FR4. And I go, which one? And they go FR4. And I kind of let them know that there are 700 materials out there that fall into that category. And, you know, if you just leave it wide open for your fabricator, you're not going to get the same thing twice. So that's a manufacturing-related issue that can come out of an incorrect specification, if you will. Uh, We see a lot of issues with 
materials uh, from a manufacturing perspective, things like uh, conformal coating and whether they're the right materials. Again, uh, over and over, I will see situations where the, the coating material uh, has a glass, what's called the glass transition temperature, and it's right smack in the middle of the operating temperature range. Now, what happens then is that every time you go from hot to cold in your operating temperature range, you put an excessive stress on the solder joints and the parts. So again, a design-related issue that translates into a manufacturing uh, problem. And uh, so you've got to have the right materials, the right process, um, you know, and and make sure that you can, uh, you know, validate all of it. And you that's have to, kind of what I we do have to, with reliability support. I do have to correct you, Greg. You said 700 um, versions of FR4. There's actually 701. Cheryl and I were both um, <laughs> hired as expert witnesses on a civil litigation matter between a... Uh, uh, IP holder and a contract manufacturer to put together their IP. And uh, the statement of work that they gave to their contract manufacturer was uh, under the um, under the board material was, and I quote, FR, down and dirty, FR4, nothing special. Down and dirty, <laughs> FR4, nothing. So I'm thinking the down and dirty, nothing special or a slash sheet that... That was previously kind. unaware of. Yeah. Right. Do you yeah, remember that, Cheryl? I didn't know about. Yeah, yes, yeah, 701, down and dirty, yeah. FR4, nothing special. Uh, but I, I see your point on that. Yeah, absolutely. They would have been. Cheryl, the case you and I worked on together yeah. was a classic absolutely. example of not designing for uh, in-use environment. Uh, you know, they, they had a battery that was supposed to last 10 years. They had a severe calf problem, some corrosion issues, dendritic growth issues, and and... Uh, you know, the first thing all that did was drain the battery, which lasted three months, not 10 years. And it was a, a big mess. Yeah. Well, we've, we've seen things once they've gotten to the manufacturing line. I'll give you a quick example because this one was kind of fun. Um, you've got to apply conformal coating during the manufacturing sequence. The material in this case was a conformal coat that I was not familiar with. It was manufactured in China. And it had a two-hour curing time at 76 degrees C. Pretty, pretty standard. Uh, so when I audited the manufacturing facility, I went to that operation, obviously, recorded a board going into the... Um, the oven to cure the conformal coating and the board came out four minutes later, clearly not cured and yet was packed up and shipped across town to a sister facility where they put together these assemblies and integrated them into the final assembly. So the, the issue of trying to speed up the process actually got pushed across town where that facility, all the operators had to wear cotton gloves. Would have been good, except they all cut the fingers off of them so that their gloves wouldn't stick to the tacky boards. So a second problem came out of the first manufacturing issue. And it was all about, you know, making the shipments faster than they should have been. Um, got both of those resolved and the yields went up over 25%. So paying attention to the manufacturing operations and, and, you know, watching how people 
function um, saves time and money. Yeah, yeah and I think that's a, a kind of a critical element there too. Um, you can't manufacture reliability in, um, but you can certainly wreck the quality of things in manufacturing by overly complex processes, by difficult um, to assemble parts, you know, complex systems, and a lot of those we have. And so you know, that's where you know, the design for manufacturability really comes into play because that's where the quality happens and that's where the cost can really kind of spiral out if you're trying to compensate for things. You're know, looking at you know, Greg's issue that he was just talking about there, you know, trying to get out certain you know, amounts to hit volume targets or things and they start adjusting processes. But you know, one of the things that um, I always appreciated about when I was in manufacturing, manufacturing engineer, were those designers who would actually come to the floor and try out, see what it was really like to try to put some of these designs together and kind of work interactively. Because, you know, as engineers, a lot of times we fall back on documentation, right? Oh, we can write up just better instructions. And, and if you just read the manual, and you know, who reads the manual, you're right? Have you read the manual for your automobile? Do you read the manual for no one reads the manuals? They skim it at best or the quick start guide. And so, you know, for me, one of the things that's like I aspire to is what I call the, the Lego version of instructions, right? You've got pictures, you've got numbers, and then it's intuitive or obvious on how it goes together right. So it's not, you know, cumbersome to do and you reduce the likelihood of mistakes, which increases your quality. You get it right the first time, it's cheaper, it's better. And so there's a lot that has to go in, you know, to make those things happen. And, and Greg and I can both share lots of, you know, challenges. And again, those things where one one small thing that they're trying to compensate for, they're cutting the fingertips off so they don't stick or so they get better things or it grip power. And then, you know, they're either transferring body oils or, you know, cascading other things. And before you know it, you've got not one, but six or seven problems that you've created by quick fix. Yeah. Let's talk about mistakes. I think we learn more from mistakes than we do from successes, <laughs> right? So, because we don't know if success is lucky, uh, and, and mistakes are generally not just unlucky. They're usually a, a result of our actions. What are some of the common mistakes made when uh, considering a reliability program? Let's combine the other question that I was going to ask, the, the myths regarding it and, and mistakes regarding it. What do people get wrong when they're, um, when they're talking about implementing a program or when they implement it for that matter? Um, you know, there's several, several different myths associated with kind of kickstarting a, uh, a reliability activity. And, you know, that's, I kind of go back to, well, you know, the, the design, we don't need to worry about working with the designers because, you know, they're just going to kind of throw it over the fence to us in manufacturing and, you know that uh, you know the we'll have to figure it out, and and that's that kind of is a, a major potential issue. Um, you know some of the uh, selection of materials, like we've talked about a little bit already, uh, the types of of uh, activities. I don't know, Cheryl. Do you think you know you have a couple of the other thoughts on what the? I, I have some definite opinions about things that make me crazy. Cheryl's in the back are um, going. Yeah. I know, I know. <laughs> well, I've got just a lot of pain points yeah. <laughs> around that. So the the biggest um, one of the biggest things is not having a definition 
of what it means to you, right? If you ask, and Mike, you've been interviewing lots of people, um, everybody, if you ask them at their company, what is quality and what is reliability, you're going to potentially get a different answer. And for legitimate reasons, what is high reliability in consumer applications, kids' toys is different than high reliability in medical devices and high reliability in aerospace and cars. And so it's not just one number, but it is a, a number and a real target. And for many places, many companies, it's very nebulous. They would said, oh, well, we want to make high reliability. Well, what does that mean? Well, you know, high reliability. It's like, well, how long does it have to last? Under what conditions does it have to last? And, you know, you have to design to a target. And without that target, again, and having those targets very early on, to Greg's point, you're not going to pick the right materials. And it works both ways. You can over-design something as well as under-design. You want to be in either direction. If you over-design it, then you're pricing your product at a, a place where it doesn't have to be for what you need. But if you underdo it, then you know you're, you're not going to meet the needs of, of that audience either. And so that's again, once you have the the targets and the goals, those are the things that lay the foundation for picking the materials, picking the appropriate processes, and, and being able to hit those targets. Because where else do you have someone go in and not have a, a, a defined criteria for what their design needs to do, right? <laughs> right, right, exactly. Before we get into your book, I just have one question, and then we, um, we need to move on to your book. Uh, I want to ask you about quite a few things about that. Where does reliability begin? What's the genesis of reliability in, in, in a manufacturing process? Well, reliability has to begin in the design process, and it has to begin at concept stage. Manufacturing is too late to have a reliability conversation. Um, you cannot manufacture reliability in if the design wasn't built for it or designed, you know, to be a, to accommodate that. So it's important to factor in in the design stage, the end use environment, the expected yes. life of the product, the cost of failure, any other types of of factors that one should consider when they're designing a product relative to reliability? What I think that one of the things that I always look at is, is you know, what is the, the field environment? We've talked about the use environment quite a bit. And I think that that becomes one of the, the pacing items for, you know, kickstarting a reliability pro program. Where is it going to go? And, you know, how do I limit uh, you know, my exposure, uh, how do I select the, the right materials that have to survive the environment? And I'm, I'm, I'm amazed at, you know, how many folks don't actually grasp what their, their field environments are. And uh, they need to, as part of the start of this program, early in the design cycle, so that they select all the right materials, parts, circuit board, and so on, right at the beginning of the process. Yeah, and, and to add on to that, you know, other things that you know are part of the whole reliability equation that we also talk about in the book are in the design phase. You have to think about you know repairability, supportability, recovery as well too, because things will fail. It's a matter of time, and so what happens when they fail? Can you recover quickly? Um, can you repair it? What does it mean from the sustainable? Or is it, you know, when it breaks, you throw it away and it's waste. And so those things are important too, because when you think about 
okay, if I want to repair it, I've got to make sure that I can disassemble it, that I have access to things. And Greg can probably tell you the number of times we've seen people put fuses on products which are meant to be replaced, and there's no way to access it. So you've essentially, you know, you have to like rebuild it to be able to access a replaceable fuse because someone wasn't thinking about how someone was actually going to get in and be able to replace the fuse if it did blow. So you have to think about those, especially in you know, bigger systems, ones that are really intended in those industries for long life. They're going to expect them to be repairable and supportable. I remember working on some cars that were designed by engineers that that uh, decided they would make it really difficult to access something that needed to be serviced. I, I think of old GM cars with the distributor between the firewall and the and the and the back of the engine block. They even made a special wrench that to unscrew the distributor so you could adjust uh, the timing. And the wrench had all these different contortions to it. It, it was only used for one application. One. That was so that you can get there. And I can only imagine the, the meetings, like, where are we going to put this? I'll just put it here. Well, you can't reach it. No, I've come up with this this crazy wrench, that, that one-in-the-world wrench that can actually uh, loosen the distributor. But sadly, they probably did not have that conversation at the time. They're like, we can fit it here. And only when it broke or someone went to right. try to service it did someone go, uh-oh. Uh-oh, yes. Back yes, that's probably true. <laughs> that's probably true. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, let's Let's talk about your book. I asked you at the beginning, um, I don't think I quite asked you this question, but what inspired you to write it? What made you sit around working a full-time, working both full-time jobs and, and having your lives and your running and all this kind of stuff and go, let's carve out a few years to write a book. Uh, whose idea was it? Where did that come from? What, what inspired it? Yeah, I, I think there's you know, a combination of things in there. First, if I mentioned earlier, um, you know, just seeing the same problem being solved over and over. And that's frustrating as an engineer, you know, once you've gotten a solution out there and you've shared it or made it available, you really hate to see other people make the same mistake. And it's not good for us or the industry, um, you know, to have that happen. And so that was part of it too, is, you know, we got to make it easier for people to be able to find the information and kind of this body of knowledge. And a lot of the books out there that we did see, um, were really more like what I call the, the super technical, um, not the more practical, how to do it in the manufacturing, how to combine these elements together. And so that was a part of it, um, you know, certainly. And then again, just that, you know, impatience and frustration at having to write that same thing over and over. I've like, I've already written that we've solved this. I'm doing it again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Same with you, uh, Greg, same same motivations? Pretty, pretty much, you know, we, we both, seen issues. Um, I'll just give you an example. Back when supercapacitors kind of made their, their presence known in the industry, everybody went crazy to, you know, put them into their systems. Um, what they hadn't looked at was were those parts going to behave reasonably in all the myriad of applications. And the problem was they didn't. And so, you know, that, I think I probably had 10 customers that came to me with the same exact headache utilizing that type of component because they jumped in with both feet without exploring it first. And so we had to solve it, but it was over and over and over. And, you know, you reach a point where it was like, um, but I can't send them the other customers, 
information because there's a non-disclosure. So I have to give them a whole new write-up, like Cheryl said. And it, 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 uh, you know, besides being monotonous, kind of, kind of is frustrating because, you know, they didn't have a place to go to figure that out. Yeah, and that's that's what we hope the book does. Walk me through the book. Um, I'm a young company. Um, I decide we need a reliability program or in an old company. I'm an old company and decide we need a reliability program. Uh, is this book written for, I don't want to say a beginner because that's, that's a relative statement, but a beginner in reliability, you know, manufacturing engineers, electrical engineers, we'll, we'll make that a, a given. Um, is this a entry level, inter intermediate level, uh, introduction to reliability? Is it an introduction to reliability or is it an advanced course on reliability or is it all of the above? I think we cover the, the, the basic elements of a reliability program in the book. And in some cases, we do some pretty deep dives because of the, the necessity for understanding that particular element or elements of the overall reliability program. So it's, I think, I think our intent was to not make it a book specifically designed for reliability engineers, but for others, electrical, mechanical uh, engineers, so that they would understand reliability and if they had to work with someone in their organization would have a better understanding of how to do that. Yeah. And we really approached it as uh, like a handbook, right? So, you know, the intent was not to make a, a theoretical, you know, foundation where we really focused on all the physics, as Greg mentioned, there's some that are unavoidable, just like some math that's unavoidable in there. And so we included those where we thought it, it was fundamental that people at least have that reference to understand the grounding for why these things happen, why you can't violate certain laws of physics, you know, to accomplish what you're doing. But you know, we did intend to make it more accessible so you don't have to be, you know, you know, an expert in the field. You don't have to be a guru. You don't have to be a chemist or a physicist, you know, to be able to use this. So it was aimed at, you know, the working people, whether they were technicians, engineers, you know, folks in manufacturing. We think there's you know, certainly the, the content was our intent that it's um, approachable by people um, of, of a pretty broad range of backgrounds. What are, walk me through the book. Uh, tell me some of the key elements of the book uh, from chapter one to chapter whatever. I, I know there's a lot of chapters. I think, I think I counted like 301 pages, including the index. Uh, so that's, that's a lot of content. Uh, so kind of walk me through the, the, key subject matters of the book. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, we kind of start off with, like you said earlier, identifying, you know, the characteristics of a reliability program. What, what does it take? Who are the people that need to be involved? What do they have to do? How do they work as a team? Uh, we have chapters on design for manufacturability, design for reliability, um, test plan development, because one of, the, one of the things that comes out of doing proper reliability assessments is being able to define the proper test plan to validate the new product or the product that's being assessed. Yeah, um, yeah and of course, 
you, a lot on problem solving, failure analysis, because again, things are going to break, they're going to fail. And what's important is to understand why to keep it from happening again. Um, obviously, we think all the chapters are important. We try to kind of create as much as we can the foundation first. So why? What? Why is it important? What's the problem we're trying to solve? Why it matters? And so that's the framing and the intro and then the, the foundations of the program itself. You know, as we've mentioned a lot, you, know, you have to understand, you know, what you're designing for and how long you want you know, that use environment, how long you want it to last, and then everything just continues to build because it, it very much is you know, a foundational program. As I mentioned before, you can build it great, but if you make poor choices in, in materials or characteristics, um, it, it's not going to you know, fulfill its intention. And so we do spend a lot of time you know, setting that up. And then you know, Greg mentioned also too about the test plan development and how to actually test and I mentioned that earlier in my running analogy is that you know, there's no industry standard that's going to substitute for the actual use environment you have. Those can be proxies, they can speed up the early development, but you still have got to get out there and test and do these things in ways that are representative of what your product is going to see. Um, otherwise, it will just fail in things that you haven't tested for um, and haven't thought of. And you know, that's one of the things I think is really critical that we, we spend some of the time in the book about as well, too, when you're talking about the problem solving process is, you know, the risk assessment. And that's where I think you see some really great work going on. You mentioned the auto industry earlier, right? So much electronics in there. Now we're talking autonomous vehicles. You we're talking about really upping the stakes for those things. And you're not going to, you're only going to spend so much on a vehicle. You're not going to spend space shuttle prices for the car you drive around every day. So it's got to be at a price point that's affordable. So the industry has really adopted a shift in, in that thinking and it's risk-based thinking. So you see a lot more work on failure modes, effects, and analysis, which we talk about in the book. Um, we talk about you know, redundancy and picking the right parts, but it's all about you know, actively coming up with scenarios. And that's where some of the things that Sherlock and ANSYS is doing now with the modeling, what can we do to run it through its paces before we ever even build it, inject faults and see what happens and, and use those tools to help us make better choices early on so things don't fail, or if they do fail, they fail in safe or more predictable fashions. And so we spend a lot of time um, in that. And of course, Greg and I spend a lot of time in failure analysis, and there's a lot of really cool activity going on there. So we cover those techniques in a lot of detail. And then at the back end, um, you know, the documentation side, as well as the sustainability and supportability sides that I mentioned earlier, right? Is it repairable? Is it serviceable? Um, is it you know, a throwaway? And then in terms of sustainability for the environment, you know, we've got to take responsibility for the waste we create and the materials that we use for the people who work in them um, globally as well too. And so those things you know, have to factor in and you see a lot more of that in designs now where they think about that sustainability piece as well too is the full life cycle. In 30 seconds or less, that's a hard to do by the way. Um, What's the key takeaway that you hope your audience will get from this book? Greg, let's start with you. I, I want readers of the book to do what I mentioned to you earlier, and that's, you know, they've been calling me and they've got the book in front of them and they're 
they want me to kind of talk to them about how it applies to their particular situation. And so, you know, I do. And then what the book has done is given me the opportunity to help another new customer um, get involved properly with reliability and possibly solve a problem very early in the design cycle so that they don't have a problem rather than experiencing headaches like they would have if they hadn't done that in the first place. So that's, that's one of my favorite things. And it could be a product that you end up buying someday. So that could actually be self-serving yes. too, right? <laughs> could happen. How about you, Cheryl? And for me, um, it's much simpler. It's designed with a reliability goal um, and you know, designed with that end in mind, right? Have that goal and design with that goal in mind. Yeah, short and sweet. All right, we promised our audience, we're not gonna string you along any further. Uh, there is a way to win a copy of this book, and that is to send me an email, mike at mikeconrad.com. That's Conrad with a K, mike at mikeconrad.com. In the subject line of the email, mention the word book, and that's all you need to do. You can, you can tell us more about your application. You can tell us more about yourself and your company if you like, but, but be sure in the subject line you mention the word book, and my team will make sure that you go into the drawing for a, a copy of Design for excellence in electronics manufacturing. Cheryl Tolkoff and Greg Coswell, thank you so much for writing the book and uh, even more importantly, being my guest today, if I can be selfish about that. Thanks for sharing your wisdom on reliability. And uh, it's always good to see you and uh, even better to talk to you. And I wish you all the success in the world with your book. I don't think you're going to need the luck. I think you've already put in the work. I think it's, it's going to manifest itself, uh, but I'm I'll be happy to uh, watch it climb the, the, the ranks of Amazon uh, technical books. And I, I do see it's on Amazon. It's about $10 off the retail price on Amazon. Uh, is, are there other uh, venues to, to buy it or, or that you would recommend? Yeah. Or is Amazon? Barnes, Barnes & Noble. Barnes & Noble. You can buy it and, and directly from Wiley, who's the publisher. Excellent. And Wiley's known for a lot of technical publications, right? That's what they specialize in. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, yes, this is specifically from their reliability and, and quality line of books that we're in. And in addition, you can get it in hardback as well as ebook and different e-reader forms too. So these bring a little bit different way to consume the book, ways to create notes and uh, track your progress as well. Wonderful. Well, thank you both very much for being my guests. Again, good luck with the book. And um, I look forward to seeing you at uh, live events sometime in the hopefully near future. Exactly. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, pleasure. Mike. Thank you. Thanks for listening or watching the Reliability Matters podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app, such as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and so many more. Also, be sure to check out my other podcasts, including the Concept to Creation podcast, where I feature conversations with entrepreneurs within the electronic assembly space, and the Innovations and Technology podcast, where we discuss innovative products within our industry. All three shows are also available in video format. Check out the Reliability Matters or Concept to Creation or Innovations in Technology podcasts on YouTube. Just search the show's name and you can find all three shows. Or go to MikeConrad.com. That's Conrad with the K. All three shows also appear there. Again, thanks for being part of my podcast family. I appreciate you being here. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay happy. And of course, keep doing it right.
See you again soon. Thanks for listening to the Reliability Matters podcast. Join us on the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for new episodes of Reliability Matters. 